Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 339 with GT Dave of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, hope you are doing well. Welcome to 2021. I'm talking to you uh, from the past. I'm backlogging all these intros because I'm going to take a much needed break. Uh, I hope you've got an incredible start to your year happening. And uh, let's talk about today's guest. Uh, His name's GT Dave. And He is the person that has really popularized and commercialized kombucha. And uh, he's built a $1 billion empire from his bedroom. It's incredible what he's done with the brand GT's Living Foods. And I go through with him like how he found this idea, you know, when he started selling his product, you know, how... This company has become a category killer. How he's educated the market, which is something that's interesting. Um, when we talk to a lot of founders, not oftentimes are they creating a product or a whole entire category and educating the market. Um, we talk about how long it took to actually find success, um, what his challenges has been, uh, you know, why passion is so much more important to him than profit and how to keep that passion alive and so much more. I really enjoyed this interview with GT Dave and I know you will as well. If you guys are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review wherever you're listening. And as I always say, share this with a friend, 
shares with multiple friends, anyone that wants to start or grow a business. We're trying to build one of the largest impactful entrepreneurial brands in the world and really democratize entrepreneurial education. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? <laughs> well, I got my job in a very unusual way. I was just a young lad. I was about 15 years old. And I honestly didn't think that I was getting ready to start a career because I think I was too young to know it at the time. But what happened is back in 1995, my parents had been making and drinking this pungent tasting tea now called kombucha for the last couple of years. Um, I thought it was very weird. I wasn't drinking it myself, but it wasn't until it helped my mom with her breast cancer that I was almost forced um, by the universe, if you will, to give it a chance and give it a try. And so I started not only drinking kombucha, but then shortly after that started making it, I started making it and I really just wanted to share it with the world. And that's kind of how I embarked on this, this journey that I've been on for the last 25 years. Yeah, crazy. So, um, from, from our, from my research, um, it sounds like you have an incredible story, uh, and, uh, there's some really interesting things I'd love to talk to you about because you have a, a different kind of approach on building a business, especially around, um, funding. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's a ton of different things. So I'd, I'd love to just start with, so you started making it when you were 15 and started drinking it. Um, and, uh, like, how did you come up with the recipe or like, like, yeah, like, like how, how did this idea of kombucha come around? Did you guys coin it or like, and yeah. No, actually, I am far from the first person on this planet to make or drink kombucha. It's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The first um, time kombucha was reportedly consumed was in 221 BC. So uh, way a very, very long time ago. Um, but to answer your question, the way I got into it is that my parents were very big into health and wellness. They raised me plant-based and I was exposed to so many different types of unique and nutritious um, foods and uh, beverages out there. And kombucha was one of them. And so, as I mentioned, because it helped my mother with her breast cancer, I just wanted to share it. I didn't see it as a, a branding opportunity, as a category creating opportunity or anything of those things that subsequently happened, um, almost as a happy accident, but certainly unexpected. And so again, therefore, I didn't even know I was even starting a business. I was just a, a teenager, a young gay boy, to be honest, that was struggling in school, was being bullied, was failing all my classes. And I wanted a second chance. And in many ways, kombucha gave me that second chance to do something with my life. And so I, I kind of grabbed the bull by the horns, as they say, and, you know, never looked back. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. So 25 years ago, you started kind of sharing it. What did that look like? You were just going to markets like, you know, farmers markets and selling it? Or did you um, like, did you, did you start the brand then? Or like, when did you start to really get into the commercial side of things? Yeah, I mean, it really was a sequence of events over the course of, call it the first five years, that eventually put me in the position of more of a um, traditional sense of a company or brand. So the way I got started is, you know, again, because I was so young, I just kind of led from the heart. So I started making the kombucha myself because I fell in love with it. Um, I started to experiment 
with different ways of making kombucha because previously the way my parents were drinking it is they were arguably over fermenting the kombucha, which was causing it to be very vinegary and very difficult to drink. So in my mind, I thought, all right, well, if I can maintain the potency of kombucha, but also make it more palatable, then that's kind of, you know, magic, if you will. So I started to play with the recipe, created what is our current recipe today, which is this very potent, very pure, but also very palatable kombucha. And then what I did is I designed my own label on my dad's uh, IBM computer and um, went to the local health food store that my parents would have me shop at ever since I was a kid. So it was very familiar and it was a natural fit. And the store back then is actually a very popular store now here in Los Angeles. It's called Air One. And so Air One is like the leading edge, bleeding edge of health and wellness here in Los Angeles and Southern California. Um, and so they were the first store to sell my product. Back then there was just one location of Air One. Now they have about, I think, four or five. And then from there, as I said, every six to 12 months, I, be, I continued to grow up and, and therefore my brand company and products was growing up with me. So I, to be honest, my first label had zero branding right? It was a black and white label with just kombucha as the name of the product, no flavor because there was no flavor at the time. It was just original ingredients, nutrition facts, panel, company address with a telephone number because I didn't even think I had email back then. And that was it. But, you know, every so often I would learn more and I would iterate or improve or elevate not only my packaging, but also the messaging around the product. And, and then it was a nice kind of organic way of growing up in, in a business sense. Yeah, interesting. And um, I've got here as well that uh, from, from my research that you started this uh, company off the back of your dad's Amex. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. I mean, because I was essentially a one man show making this kombucha in my parents' house while still being essentially a teenager in the house. I didn't really have, and this was a, certainly a huge blessing and benefit, is I didn't really have my own overhead. I wasn't paying rent because I was, you know, a, a child in the house. And most of my expenses initially, my father gave me his credit card that I would use and go to whether it was Home Depot to buy the industrial racking that I needed to build out my fermentation room or whether that was to buy labels or bottles or caps and all that kind of startup raw materials and packaging that one needs to get going. But then honestly, I only really needed my father's support maybe for the first six months, because what I did is I saved every single penny of every sale of every bottle. And I wasn't really paying myself. And because I didn't have an overhead, I was essentially having mostly pure profit. And so I would save that money and then reinvest it in the company in months or years to come. Interesting. So um, you've been working on the brand for 25 years. Uh, and uh, I'm curious as well, um, you know, you guys are the, the category king when it comes to kombucha. Um, back then, was anyone else selling kombucha? No, believe it or not, there was no other brand in the kombucha space when I got started. That was in many ways a, a, a blessing because I didn't have to deal with any competition. But to be honest, it was actually more of a challenge because then the entire burden of educating the consumer as well as the retailer and the, the buyers within the stores was all on my shoulders. So that's why for the first two or three years, I didn't really expand too quickly as far as 
expanding my distribution into other stores. I stayed in Air One and a handful of other local natural food stores in the greater Los Angeles area because I really wanted to go super deep in my relationship building with the stores and subsequently the consumers. Because again, kombucha wasn't those things, and it's still not, but kombucha is not one of those things that you just have like a cute ad or a cute slogan and then people buy it. It's not as transactional as like water or soda or juice can be. It really is this story, if not this conversation, that you have to build and maintain with everybody that you work with and everybody that's interacting with you. So that was my philosophy and, and continues to be, to be honest. Interesting. So, yeah, that is something tricky in the sense that, you know, like kombucha is like a well-known product now everywhere you can go, like, you know, you can, you can, you can buy it, right? But um, you've had to really educate the market of what it is, why, you know, like why people should, should purchase that over something else. Um, I'm curious, like when you talked about the story and the education, what, what were you doing to, to really, like, is, is it on the label when you're like, when, like, how, how do you sell a product where people don't really understand? And it's, it's just totally different to anything else out there. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And it really is more information that a label can hold. So for the first five years, and honestly, even the first 10 years, I relied heavily on in-store sampling because with that opportunity, I was able to personally, or even with the help of my mother at the time, personally interact and engage with the consumer. And, and usually what my approach was is I would first talk about the history of kombucha so people knew that this wasn't like a fly-by-night snake oil or placebo or bogus product, right? Because there was a lot of those back in the day, like the, the Sobe and Snapple. They all had kind of like these fairy-dusted types of products where they would put echinacea or other herbs in it, but there was really no nutritional value to them. So the consumer was very suspicious of what you said to them. So whenever I would talk about kombucha, I'd always talk about its history. I'd always talk about how it's made. Right. And I would use, I would use things like yogurt and miso and um, kefir and apple cider vinegar as examples of fermented foods that we all know in the health and wellness industry are basically bulletproof um, legacy ingredients that, you know, everybody knows how healthy they are. And then I would talk about the health benefits of what kombucha does. And I would never really make any claims. I would always say that kombucha, like many things in this world, lots of water, lots of sleep, lots of exercise, that when used in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle, you notice a, a dramatic and remarkable change and improvement in your health. And then what I would do is I would cut to my personal story as well as my mother's story. So what I shared with people firsthand is, I said, listen, I'm young because I was 15, 16, 17 years old at the time. And I would say, I thought I was healthy. I was plant-based, raised a vegetarian, exercise, all that stuff. But when I started drinking kombucha, it gave me a new form of health. Like I would get sore throats, gone. I would get sick, gone. I'd get tired, gone. I would have indigestion or bloating, gone. And so that was really my firsthand testimonial of sharing with these new potential consumers that kombucha really could change their life even if they think they don't need it. And then of course, with the biggest selling point and the most inspirational aspect of my story and my early beginnings was of course my mother, right? Because my mother's success with her breast cancer was really remarkable. Um, you know, the doctors gave her a very bleak kind of diagnosis. They said she probably wouldn't live more than 12 months. And my mother 
you know, obviously completely uh, defied that kind of prophecy and became a cancer survivor. And even during her, because she did have surgery and chemotherapy, and even through her treatments, which a lot of times can end up killing the patient, kombucha played a significant role in keeping her strong and resilient. So the long of the short is I was essentially sharing those personal stories with people to inspire them. And because it was really coming from the heart and not from like a really cool slogan or really cool, cool ad, people felt connected not only with the kombucha that I was offering, but as well as me and my company and my brand. Yeah, that's great. Like great advice because I think it takes time, right? Like so, like that over, that idea of the overnight success. Um, because you know, when I you know know of kombucha, and you know, I even see it like when they talk about gut health, like it's one of the things there. Like you know, you see it there. Like it, it is so. You've really um, helped popularize the the product. Um, I'm and I'm curious. You know, you've been doing this for 25 years um, and people would look at yourself and your success like, you know, thinking that it might be an overnight success or like, you know, it's crazy, you guys are just blown up or whatever, right? But how long do you think it really took to, to become a, a mass market brand or a category king and, and really take the market? Yeah, I would say it was probably about 10 years of a run from 1995 to 2005 to really eventually hit our stride, know who we are, know who we aren't, really master and hone in our voice and our messaging, and really know who our audience is and how we could connect with them. Um, now, having said that, there was a big difference from 2005 to 2010 in the US, right? Because, um, you know, in my mind, the first half of my company's history was, as I said, partially me growing up, but in many ways, I think it was also the consumer growing up because there was a dramatic change from 1995 as far as what the response and kind of point of view that the consumers would had to these types of raw fermented products versus 2005, people are a lot more educated, a lot more sensitive to what's in the ingredients, sensitive to how it's made, how it's packaged, things of that nature. And then from 2005, to 2010, you, you started to see even more of this awareness of good, clean food. So I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make, it really was a culmination of a lot of different things. It was my own personal path and journey and evolution, as well as the consumer and their understanding and education of the importance of good, clean food and what that looks like. Yeah, interesting. So um, one thing that's uh, really interesting and please correct me if I'm wrong, because you know you can do research and stuff. I don't know whether you know how much of this is is true or or not. Um, but uh, you guys have over your forty percent market share in the kombucha in the kombucha space. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yep. And I don't know. It, 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 you're estimated to be doing around uh, three hundred million dollars per year. Uh, well, I don't honestly talk about sales, so that's the only part that I'll, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to yep. leave you in the dark on. That's totally because fine. Because we, we consider, I mean, our market share is a little bit subjective, to be honest, but as far as our revenue, we keep that private. Just because, uh, you know, honestly, and this is going to sound silly, I don't want anybody listening to think that I'm doing this for the money. So whether I'm making $300 million or $300, um, my path is the same. 
Yeah, I really respect that. Yeah, look, so I just just had to ask because because I'm trying to give the audience the scale of of like what you've done and your accomplishments, and um, maybe we can talk about kind of like um, yeah, like like what what are the biggest challenges you guys have now? Like like what kind of volume in products are you moving? Like you know, like I'd love to hear about that. What are the what what are the challenges you face now? Well, there's a variety of challenges, right? As as they say, more money, more problems. Or the bigger you are, the harder you can fall. So um, so I'll, if you don't mind, I can just kind of give yeah, you a variety please. of somewhat random examples. So fortunately, making our product has not been a challenge. And I think the reason for that is because I started, in my opinion, the right way, right? I started making my product firsthand with my bare hands. There's, I, I was able to study it and work out all the bugs and find out how to make it great and how to avoid making it bad. So that was really the first five years, which is, I think, also a reason why I was very slow and steady with expanding my distribution. So I really wanted to understand my product because with something like kombucha, it's not like a soda where you just mix together some ingredients, bottle it, and it's fine. Kombucha is a lot like a plant or even a form of agriculture where it's always evolving. There's seasonal variations. There's even flavor or quality changes from one batch to the another. So you really have to study your batch and even study it after it's been bottled because it's still a living product and it can still change. So fortunately, I, I, I don't want to say I've mastered it because <laughs> it's always a work in progress, but I think I, I have that pretty much down where I think most of the changes are, or the challenges I should say come into play is that one is making sure, and I think this is something that a lot of businesses and a lot of entrepreneurs um, face over time, is as you grow your business, and I'll use the somewhat silly analogy of raising a child, right? You know, you raise the company and the brand, and it goes through different phases of its life, and that at a certain point, it's it's essentially ready to grow up and be its own adult, right? Be its own entity. And what you need to do but I think a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes forget to do this or get distracted with other stuff is stop and ask themselves, is this company, is this brand, is this product, has it grown up to be everything I want it to be? And does it still have the DNA um, and the qualities that I raised it with? And, and the reason why I think this is important, and you, you probably are thinking, oh, well, this is so basic. Of course, everybody does that. But in reality, most people don't because they get so caught up in the rat race. And, you know, once you achieve a form of success, you always, and I'm guilty of this too, always set the bar higher. So you're always looking at, you know, how can I beat last year's sales? How can I increase profitability? How can I capture more market share? How can I expand distribution? And in doing that, you sometimes forget that you might have stepped off your path. So I think it's important to constantly check yourself. And that's what I've done and continue to do because it's so easy to get caught up in the success. In many ways, success can be, in very, can be very intoxicating and it can almost distort the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, and certainly the way you see your products. So I think it's important to do that recalibration frequently. And so that in many ways is a challenge. It's something that you have to make a conscious effort to do almost on a daily basis because everything you do, you have to ask yourself is, does this feel right? Does this make sense? Is, am I staying true to myself? And in this day and age where there's such a, an immense amount of uh, innovation and 
uh, and content out there. And there's so many people kind of almost yelling and screaming about, look at me, look what I'm selling, buy me, look at my product, that you almost feel encouraged to participate in that behavior, which in many ways is not a good thing because it just becomes this yelling match. So it's really finding very thoughtful ways of maintaining your relevancy, but not getting caught up in this rat race and, and most importantly, not losing your identity. Interesting. And um, one thing that I also find quite fascinating is you guys have accepted no outside funding and you've also turned down um, various huge acquisition offers. Yes, <laughs> which I know some people are thinking and be like, what an idiot. Well, the truth is, um, first of all, on the investment side is similar to what I was saying earlier a second ago is that I think every brand and every entrepreneur sometimes struggles with maintaining their path, right? And staying true to who they are. And in my mind, that becomes even more difficult when you have someone else in the picture. Okay. It's a lot like a marriage, right? And that's why sometimes marriages end up in divorce is you sometimes join forces to start a household or raise a family. And there's differences of opinion that can sometimes create friction. Um, so with me, because in many ways, I felt like I gave birth to my kombucha. In so many ways, it was my baby. I didn't really want any outside influences or worse yet, even um, more business-minded um, influences that would tell me, hey, which unfortunately, it sounds like I'm disparaging the business mindset, which I'm not, but like, hey, you know, change your recipe to make more money, change your formula to extend the shelf life, add more sugar so it has more of a mainstream appeal, right? Those are things that I honestly did hear from periodic mentors and periodic kind of influences from the outside. And that was my first um, insight to, all right, I, I can't listen to that noise. I need to stay tr true to myself and true to this path because Again, not to sound redundant, I started making kombucha because I genuinely felt it could change the world. I didn't start it thinking like, I'm going to get so rich or I'm going to be so famous, which yeah. a lot of people, when you deal with investors, even if they say, oh, I love your company and your brand because you're doing something great, it's still a transaction. Like they're giving you money and they want money back. And the, and the clock starts ticking the second they give you the money and they want to know, when am I going to, when are you going to exit? When am I going to be able to you make a return on my investment. And in my mind, that's a big distraction. Um, and then as well as selling my company, right? Not to say that I think there's anything wrong with that, or I'm certainly not disparaging anybody listening that has sold their company or wants to sell their company. It's a matter of personal preference, to be frank. But for me, like the, the biggest kind of uh, gating item, if you will, is the fact that my product has my name on it, right? And most products rarely have the founder's name on it, not even Steve Jobs, his name is on Apple. And so I think when you when your identity is almost tethered to the product, in many ways, it does feel truly like your child. And, you know, I don't know anybody um, that has said, I want to have a kid. And then I want to put it up for adoption. Mm. Because I mean, nobody really makes that plan. Right. Um, so that's how it is for me. Like I see like I, it was very intentional for me to, to start making kombucha, to start my company. And I feel what I'm doing is I really am I'm raising this life form that hopefully will make me proud and will continue my legacy even when I'm no longer around. And I don't know if I could say that if I sold my company to a larger company like the Cokes, the Pepsis and what have you, because those aren't founder companies anymore. Right. They're very massive 
publicly traded companies. And the number one thing that they pay attention to, whether they admit it or not, is making their shareholders happy, which means making profit. And I think profit and passion struggle to coexist. And I'm a very passionate person. So for now, I'm on this solo journey. Yeah, well, I, I really respect your your approach here because I think as time has gone on, there is much more, there's this movement of, of bootstrapping and staying bootstrapped and, and you're really controlling your own destiny versus going off and looking to raise capital. It just depends on that journey though, because like, you know, I think you've been very fortunate because, um, it sounds like you know you guys um, have done really well on the retailer side. Sometimes that can be quite capital intensive with big purchase orders, and it, when you're starting out to fund that, it can be very very difficult, you know, or to navigate these big purchase orders and stuff like that. But no, I really I really respect your your take and and the the fact that you're doing something that is like a true calling and a true purpose to you that it's not about the money and you know whether it's an extra zero or not right like that doesn't probably really going to change your lifestyle or anything like that right yeah and again th that there's that's the reason why it took 10 years for me to have national distribution is i do understand that if you take on a national retail chain that has again that that places that very large pur purchase order it could actually destroy your business. And so I was very cognizant of that early on, which is why I went from store to store, city to city, not you know region to region, chain to chain within the first five or 10 years. Because it, again, I don't wanna sound like a broken record, but it's a lot like having a child and within the first two years, you throw them into college. You would never do that, right? There's a sequence of events and, see, and, a, and a certain you know uh, cycle of that life that you need to follow to make sure that they are learning at the appropriate rate and being exposed to an environment that's conducive to who they are at that moment, space and time. So in my mind, a company or a brand is no exception. Now, having said that, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that have a, a three to five year plan. And in that five year, they want to be $100 million. They want to exit. They want to be a billion dollars, all of that. And that's totally fine. It's, it's a different path than mine, which neither is right or wrong, is I'm more of a passion, purpose-driven individual where I, I already feel that I've, I've made it, right? The fact that I make a product that I love and make a product that I, I know helps people's lives be better, I'm good. I don't, anything else on top of that is like just a bonus. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious as well, sometimes people, when they start a business, uh, as time goes on, they lose passion for it. Do you think that that is because they have the wrong intentions or do you think you could ever lose passion for the work that you're doing because you want to build a legacy? Sounds like this is a business that perhaps, you know, like might be a family business or like, yeah, like, like be passed down or like, yeah, like what, what's your take there? Yeah, I think that's a very real question in the sense that, um, and I must admit in the 25 years that I've been doing this, not every year has been great. And there were days where I struggled to get up in the morning. Um, I lost a little bit of the fire in the belly. And it wasn't because I had any second guesses on, is this my path and is kombucha really for me? I, there was never a doubt in my mind about that. But I think what can happen is twofold, right? One is that slippery slope, as I referenced earlier, of being caught up in the success and the competition and I need to beat last year's numbers or I didn't hit my target goals or I need to be nationwide by next year. All those kind of rather self-imposed or even outside-imposed um, pressures 
they can really start to eat at you, right? And almost make you feel like a failure or make you feel desperate or make you feel even like even that and perhaps that you're even losing, right? And I think losing can be subjective, right? It depends on your your standards that you set for yourself. So I think that in many ways can start to discourage you. And I think being discouraged in many ways can erode your passion. The other half, so by the way, that never really happened to me, fortunately, because as kind of I said earlier, I just wanted to make one great bottle that helped one person and they, and, and that's it. And so I was, I did that, I believe in the first few months of me starting. So everything after that was like an unexpected success. So I was always on cloud nine as far as that is concerned. The, the other example that I'll give that is more applicable to me is that as you become more successful, as your brand has more awareness, has more of a reputation in the marketplace, um, in many ways, you do feel that you're under a magnifying glass. And what that means is that, you know, people will judge you, people will criticize you, people will make certain, will dismiss you. Um, so that can be hard. Um, you know, again, a lot of people have said that, oh, he's so lucky he started kombucha when he did, because there's no brands when he started. So he basically had like a, a cakewalk. And it's like, okay, that's easy for you to say, but you weren't with me in 1995 when I was competing with Sobe and Snapple. Um, so there's that. And then there's also, and this is a horrible thing. And, and to all the entrepreneurs listening out there is this is probably one of the hardest things that entrepreneurs can go, uh, go through. And that really is kind of the scrutiny of, um, lit, uh, litigation and litigious behavior is that, and, you know, maybe where you are um, in, in the country that you're in, you don't see this as much. But in the States, any brand, once you become um, a, a, achieve a certain degree of success, you immediately become a target to be sued. And what happens is you're sued for somewhat frivolous reasons, um, whether that's employment, whether it's compliance, whether it's consumer, whether it's whatever. And the, the way that, that this works is that especially here in California, is a company and brand is usually guilty until proven otherwise. So anybody can make any allegation against you and the burden of proof is on you, the company and brand and employer to prove them wrong. And what happens is, is that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars in defense. And then there's a chance that you may lose. And if you lose, you have to pay not only your attorney's fees, but the others as well as whatever value that's awarded and if you win, you kind of still lose because you pay. And I'll give you an example. I won't give you the details, but, you know, many years ago, we, we were fighting a complete frivolous um, litigation again, that was actually sexual discrimination of a, a bisexual male within my company. And, you know, for me, I was like, guys, I'm a gay male. I would never, ever. That's, I'm a gay male, by the way, that's been bullied. So I would never, ever tolerate any form of discrimination. But this individual made such outlandish claims that allowed him to have this case that we had to take it all the way through to trial. And I had to sit up there on the stand and basically tell a jury that I was a young gay male being bullied in high school. And without a doubt, I will never, ever allow anybody under my watch to be bullied. And fortunately, we won that case. But I was left with a $400,000 legal bill and with nine months of, of heartache and headaches. And what happens is, is 
and, the, and sorry for this long-winded answer, but at the end of this journey, what I was told by my attorney is you're a target, you're successful, and people see you as wealthy. And so you have deep pockets. And whether they know, think that their case is right or wrong, the way things work, especially here in the States, it's this thing called cost of defense, which means do I pay my attorneys hundreds of thousands of dollars or do I pay you 50000 to go away? And it starts to feel like this extortion game. And I'm telling you, extortion in many ways feel is almost like blackmail. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And I think brands and, and companies and entrepreneurs get pulled into this trap. And so what happens is you rather A, do what I do and you fight back, or B, you become like a Coke or a Pepsi where everything you do is safe. You don't take any risk. You're not a trailblazer. You don't take any chances, you don't do anything out of the ordinary, because by the way, if you do, you become a target. And so I think many, at many times that becomes this internal struggle that I've personally gone through of like, you know, I, I, I know what I'm doing is helping people, but there are people out there in the world that are going to poke holes in that. They're going to spin things in their favor and somehow demonize me or my product in the process. And that's the hardest thing. That really, really is the hardest thing. So okay, I'll give you an example. In 2010, the kombucha category was being scrutinized for the potential for alcohol. And kombucha had been around for 15 years. But in that moment, space and time, because kombucha was so new, there was this concern that, oh, it's fermented and fermentation has alcohol. Oh, my God, it, this might be booze. And overnight, the entire category, including my brand, was demonized and disparaged, and that was really tough because for the last 15 years, I had been, I kept my head down, I was focusing on making a great product, I was focusing on connecting with the consumer, I was focusing on making something that I believe was authentically healthy, and then out of the blue for someone to say, you're wrong, what you're doing is bad, we're gonna shut you down, it, it's hard. And by the way, by the time this happened in 2010, it wasn't just my brand that was on the shelf, there was about a dozen. And I'm telling you, after the three months of this controversy that transpired, no other brand besides mine came back because the, the, the brands and the entrepreneurs couldn't stomach that degree of controversy and um, kind of attack. And it really is, and this is for anybody that's listening, is the most important thing that you need to do when starting your brand and your company is root yourself in, I, I believe in what I'm doing. And I'm doing this because I genuinely feel it makes the world a better place. Because if you don't have those two things and it's really like, oh, I think this is fun or, oh, I think this is going to make me a lot of money. When challenges come your way and mark my, mark my words, they always do. If you don't have that solid foundation, you'll crack. And that's what a lot of brands in 2010 did. And unfortunately, I'm not here to toot my own horn, but I was able to navigate that storm because I, I was grounded in the things that I believed in and I was able to maintain my confidence throughout that scrutiny and controversy to really transcend it and rise above it. Yeah, wow, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing like your vulnerability because that like that must have been really tough uh, going through these legal battles and all these different things. And that's that's the dark side of entrepreneurship that often people don't talk about. You know, when I was researching and you know we're looking up, you know, they say that your company's valued at over a billion dollars and you own a hundred percent. And it's just like, wow, that's impressive, you know. But um, you know, that that's this is what happens when you're at the top, right? You you know, people are gonna take a take a shot. So Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, when it comes to, I guess, 
competitors now, um, you would probably have a lot of copycats. How do you deal with that? How do you handle that? What advice do you have to people where, you know, someone sees what you're doing and, and they want a piece of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest. So first of all, I think, listen, I, I love to inspire people. And, and I believe by making authentic raw kombucha for the last 25 years, that I've not only inspired people to reassess their diet and lifestyle, but also to start to become curious in this beautiful world of fermented raw foods, right? So I've seen a lot of brands and, and products be born, and I've been told this specifically, um, from experiencing and interacting with my product, right? It inspired them to make a, a, a raw kimchi or to do this or do that. I think that's great. Where I draw the line is when they start to copy you and then worse yet, uh, attack you. So I would say, unfortunately, in the last 10 years, there has been this proliferation of brands that you know copy the, the flavors we make, copy the imagery on our label, They've even gone as far to copy our bottle, and but then you know they won't admit it. Um, and and in addition to not admitting that they've borrowed some stuff from us, then they attack us. And and I'm not going to name any names um, because honestly, there's too many to name. But there have been brands out there that would say, oh, you know, we don't taste as bad as his, or we don't have those like loogies floating in the bottle. Or, you know, ours isn't so sour and disgusting um, or things of that nature. Or we don't mass produce our products. Um, and I'd even hear things that they would start rumors and saying that I was sold to Coke. I was sold to Pepsi. Doing anything, honestly, in their bag of tricks to kind of push my brand down to elevate themselves. And, you know, I think that really is the dark side of competition. I, I do believe that competition's healthy. And I think... Um, you know, the tide rises all boats. And I think that having more than one brand in the kombucha space is a great thing because I think that indicates and signifies to the consumer and the broader marketplace that this is a legitimate category and it's not going anywhere. Mm. But I think there's, a, um, again, a line you can cross if in order to um, advance yourself, you're putting other people down because in my mind, it's just negative energy. And with something as special and as sacred as kombucha, where in my mind, it's this living, breathing thing that's so sensitive to energy. And that's what makes it so special is it has this vibration that I think works with us on a cellular level. I find it ironic that negativity and stuff like that can come from a kombucha brand in the kombucha space, because it's, it's almost counterintuitive to why we exist. So forgive me for the long winded answer, but it's just, again, it's the trials and tribulations of, you know, being successful as we talked about, and then also being the first, when you're the first people like to take shots at you. Yeah, that's true. So, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, but, um, I'm curious, like, did you have any words of wisdom that you would like to share for anyone that's, um, you know, just on earlier, early in their journey, uh, or they're just, you know, been working on something for a couple of years and they're starting to get some traction uh, because yeah you've been you know at this for a long time you've built a very successful business a category king brand like um, yeah I, I'd love to hear well I'll give you a variety of advice um, so one is for anybody who's getting started you really need to ask yourself is what are you doing and why are you doing it because as I said earlier is if you can say I'm doing this because I'm passionate about it I'm doing it because it makes me happy. 
And I'm doing it because I genuinely feel that it's making the world a better place and improving people's lives. That is certified gold. Um, but if your answer is, well, I think I can make a lot of money or I think I could get famous, I'm going to be honest, you, you may be starting for the wrong reasons. And that um, disalignment, if you will, with yourself and this philosophy that you're looking to further may rear its ugly head and sabotage your success. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, always get proof of concept because a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm guilty of this, we get so obsessed with what we're doing, we think it's the most amazing thing. But you need to make sure that others agree because nine out of 10 times you'll find out that you're rather kind of there or completely off the mark. Because when it comes to a product and kind of like what we were saying earlier is if you have the opportunity that I was fortunate to have early on, we were able to have a conversation with consumers. If you can rather hear from them and then understand what's important from them. But if you don't have that opportunity, it really the product has to speak for itself. And you need to make sure that everything that you think the product is saying and everything you think the product is doing, that the consumer agrees and they're getting that same message. Because nine out of 10 times, a lot of times it's not happening that way, which can stunt your growth. Um, the third advice is keep it simple and keep it slow. And that is kind of dovetails with the proof of concept idea of just making sure that, hey, go from one batch to two batches, don't go from one batch to 200. Because in my mind, quality is always king and rapid growth can sometimes um, erode quality and erode your standards. And then again, then what are you making? You're not making a great product anymore. And then last but not least is stay true to yourself. And even if you decide to work with an investor or a partner, that's fine. Just make sure that you're absolutely aligned with why the two of you are joining forces. Is it a transactional reason or is it really more of a passionate philosophical reason? And are you really better together, not just with merging bank accounts or finances, but also merging of minds and heart to make sure that this individual or these group of individuals that you're bringing in the picture are truly going to make you and your brand better? Um, and I would challenge that because even if optically you think the answer is yes, you really want to kind of test it and make sure that there's certain criteria that says, hey, partner or investor, you know, this is a marriage. I do certain things, you do the others. And if you don't, then I have an opportunity to take you out of the picture. Because a lot of entrepreneurs don't think that way and they get so excited that I'm raising money or I have somebody coming into the picture, but they don't really have kind of um, who's the, the division of labor, if you will, and really how you're gonna join forces and not step on each other's toes. So I think that kind of summarizes what I think people should be mindful of when starting and running their businesses. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, GT. It was a fantastic interview. Appreciate your vulnerability as well and just being so open with us. Um, so yeah, look, thank you so much for your time. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And um, also one last question. Where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Absolutely. So our website is GT's Living Foods. Um, so it's gtslivingandfoods.com. And that's where you can find all our products from our kombucha to our um, adaptogenic mushroom drinks called Alive, our water kefir and everything else we make. And then on uh, social media, all our handles are GT's Kombucha. So that's GTS and then Kombucha. And then myself, I'm really simple. It's GT Dave and the number three. And I'm on Instagram. So you can find me that way. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a good rest of your day. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You too. Take care.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.